Well, we continue in Revelation this morning. Revelation 10 is where we find ourselves as we're making our way basically chapter by chapter from this point on through John's Revelation. We saw the first six trumpets last week. Um, The first four trumpets largely concerned the destruction of nature in chapter 8. And then the fifth and sixth trumpets focused on the spiritual torment that is upon humanity in chapter 9. And these trumpets, as I explained last week, are similar to the seals, the seals that we see in chapter 6. They cover the same ground, but just from a different point of view. And that ground is the entire period of Christ's coming until his coming again. Only this time as we come into the trumpets and as we saw in the seals, there's an amped up intensity. And just as the seals in chapter 6 are followed by an interlude in chapter 7. Remember, things go quiet, and then all of a sudden there is a reminder of the protection of God's people in chapter 7, that in the midst of all these temporal judgments that are coming upon the world due to human sin, that God nevertheless is protecting his people. We saw that in chapter 7. And so, just as the trumpets in chapters 8 and 9 are a, a period of temporal judgment patterned after the seals, so chapter 10 and 11 chapter 10 that we'll begin this morning, and Lord willing, chapter 11 that we'll see next week, is patterned in ways after chapter 7. It's a reminder that God's people will be protected. So Revelation 10, 1 through eleven fourteen is a parenthesis between the 6th and 7th trumpets. And this is certainly a change of subject matter from what we saw last week in chapters 8 and 9, where we witnessed the outpouring of God's wrath on unbelieving humanity and on nature as well. And now we see a word of encouragement that's going to begin in chapter 10 and continue into chapter 11 regarding God's purposes for his people. So this morning, we uh, have entitled the sermon, Proclaiming the Purposes of God, which is what John is being revealed, what's being revealed to John here is a reminder that he is not just to see these things that he's being given, these visions that he's receiving from the Holy Spirit, but also to proclaim these things. So he's, he's receiving sort of a recommissioning. He's being told not just to observe this scroll, but here, take it, eat it, proclaim it. And that's what we see in chapter 10 this morning. So we're going to look at four points concerning the purposes of God in Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Let's begin, first of all, by seeing the first, in the first four verses, God's purposes are being revealed. God's purposes are being revealed. In verses 1 and 2, we see another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, this is not the first time in the book of Revelation we've seen a reference to a mighty angel. In fact, in Revelation 5, verse 2, the same terminology appears, and that's right before the Lamb is revealed as the one who can open the scroll. In both instances, in Revelation chapter 5 and here in Revelation chapter 10, these mighty angels cry out with a loud voice. And I want you to notice how this angel is described in the first four verses. First of all, he's described as wrapped in a cloud. In the Old Testament, clouds are often the vehicle by which God makes an appearance. Think of the pillar of cloud in the Exodus. There was also a rainbow over his head. This is probably an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 1, where God is described in similar terms. The only other reference in Revelation that we have to a rainbow is in chapter 4, verse 3, where God is pictured on his throne surrounded by a rainbow, perhaps alluding to the covenant with Noah back in Genesis 
chapter 6, verse through, or 6 through 9. We also read of his face, this mighty angel's face, shining like the sun. That recalls a description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. His legs are also like a pillar of fire. Again, this points back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 15 and the description of the risen and glorified Jesus that we see there. Then we also note in verse 3 that there is a voice compared to a lion roaring. You'll recall that Christ is compared to a lion in Revelation chapter 5 verse 5. Now, with all these descriptors being wrapped in a cloud, a rainbow over his head, face like a sun, like pillars of fire, a lion roaring. Many see this angel, this mighty angel, in fact, as the person of Christ himself. However, the word translated angel, angelos, or messenger, is never used elsewhere in Revelation of anything but a created heavenly being. Additionally, as we see in verse 6, as we'll see in a moment, this angel swears by God seeming to indicate that the angel is not divine. So I'm inclined to see this angel not as Christ himself, but rather as a messenger who represents Christ and speaks authoritatively on his behalf. That's why he shares many of the characteristics of Christ, because he is a representative of Christ. Because the angel is doing Christ's will and speaking on Christ's behalf and portraying his rule over the world, he's described in terms that directly apply to the Lord Jesus. He reflects the Lord's majesty and the Lord's glory and the Lord's sovereignty. And we in fact read that he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, which is pointing to Christ's universal, unchallenged dominion over all creation. So this mighty angel then is a representative of the Lord Jesus sent by him to communicate to John. Now what does he communicate? In verse 2, we see that this angel had a little scroll open in his hand. Now, if you've been paying attention through Revelation, we get a clue here. You may recall from chapter 5 that the scroll was sealed with seven seals, and there was one and only one who was able to open it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we aren't told if or how this little scroll relates to that scroll, so it's best not to be too dogmatic or to speculate too much, but if it is the same one, and I think it is, in which many others believe, then this would be a picture, just like Revelation 5, of revealing God's unfolding purposes in bringing his kingdom to earth in human history. You say, well, why is it little? It's described as a little scroll. Wouldn't that make it a different scroll from the one that Christ opened? Well, not necessarily. Perhaps it's little so that it could be fed to John. Because remember, at the end of this chapter, John's going to eat this scroll and as a, as a symbol that he's not just to see it, but proclaim it. And remember what the contents of this scroll is all about anyway. It's, a, it's centered on Jesus Christ and his role in accomplishing the mission of God in human history. That Christ and Christ alone is the one who's able to open the seals, that is, break open God's purposes, his providence for human history, and accomplish his will. And what's at the center of his will? Laying down his life as a lamb 
who would ransom people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's the gospel. The contents of that scroll are essentially God's gospel message. With it, mixed in with judgment and wrath, to be sure, but centered on the person and work of Christ. Now we read that when this mighty angel spoke, he called out with a loud voice, and according to verse 3, seven thunders sounded. What are the seven thunders? I have no idea. And we're not told. Say, that's not helpful, Pastor Mark. I know it's not helpful. Sometimes we're just not told. Again, Revelation is a picture book that's meant to give us images and thoughts, not necessarily to answer all of our questions. Remember, Revelation is primarily concerned with the who and the why, not the how and the when. Okay, it's, pres- it's, it's, it's mostly focused on who, Christ, and why history is wrapping up this way, not necessarily how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen or all those questions that we are typically most interested in. Now, perhaps these seven thunders are a reference to the final judgment. In Revelation, the final judgment is accompanied by thunder. We see it in chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 16, verse 18, chapter 19, verse 6, that we'll get to in weeks to come. And as the number 7 is symbolic in the book of Revelation for completeness or fullness, then perhaps what's being depicted here is the full and final judgment of God. We can't be sure that's just a shot at it. Yet, why was John prohibited from writing this down? Right, we read in Revelation 10, verse 4, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, John says, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Well, it may be echoing God's command in Daniel 8, verse 26, and Daniel 12, verse 9. Remember, the Old Testament is always in the background of everything that's going on. And and part of the reason we're so puzzled by Revelation sometimes is because we don't know our Old Testaments very well. And so if we knew our Old Testaments the way we need to know our Old Testament, these images would be more helpful to us than confusing to us. And in in, in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is told to seal up what has been written because it will take place many days from now, and refers to what Daniel says is the time of the end. So in that sense, there'd be no need to write it down because it's coming soon. It's not many days from now. It's concerning the time of the end. But that may not be the entire reason that John is told not to write this down. There could be another reason. Here's the one I'm proposing. Now again, this is I'm not trying to be dogmatic about this because I don't think we can be absolutely sure why the angel tells him, hey, don't write this, because we're not told. He just said, don't do it. But if you think about what was said previously, okay? So remember at the end of chapter 9, what we read? Let's read these verses again. The end of chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, remember taking taking the language of the Exodus and the judgments on Pharaoh prior to the deliverance of God's people, did not repent, just like Pharaoh, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or talk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So we saw at the end of last week that even though God's judgment is merciful and designed to induce repentance, it doesn't always do that. And in fact, more often than not, it doesn't. 
And so we see the effect of these judgments was no repentance. Well, how would that relate to John being told by the angel, don't write this down? Well, perhaps, again, I'm submitting this for your consideration, the six seals, since the six seals affected, if you remember, a quarter of the earth, and the six trumpets affected a third of the earth, what if the seven thunders were to inflict perhaps half of the earth? We're just intense, or again, ramping up the intensity here. Now, if this were true, this is it's speculation, but if it were true, would it produce repentance? Likely not, even if it were intensified, right? If the seals didn't do it and the trumpets didn't do it, maybe these seven thunders would? Maybe not. Perhaps the thunders then are withheld because it's already been demonstrated that the plagues and temporal judgments of God on creation don't bring people to repentance. John is not allowed to write down the seven thunders because they will never occur. One writer puts it this way. It's probable that the seven thunders represent a further series of limited warning judgments which are revoked. After the judgments of the seal openings affecting a quarter of the world and those of the trumpets affecting a third of the world, we might expect a series of judgments of even greater severity affecting half the world. But warning judgments have proven ineffective. There are to be no more series of limited judgments. Now, I like that idea, especially in light of its contextual consideration at the end of chapter 9. But nevertheless, it could be something different. We're not told, but we, well, this much we are told. We are told that God's purposes are being revealed progressively in these judgments and that they are intended, though ineffectual often, to produce repentance and the final judgment is coming soon. God's purposes are being revealed. Point number two, God's purposes will be fulfilled. God's purposes will be fulfilled. Let's look at verse five through seven. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what's in it, that there would be no more delay. Remember, these areas of where he's swearing by the one who created the sea and heaven and all that, those are the areas that are receiving the temporal judgments of the seals and the trumpets. So he's recognizing God's sovereignty over all of these. But he says that there would be no more delay. And then verse 7, But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, which is coming at the end of chapter 11, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So we see in verse 5, a solemn oath is taken by the same angel of verse 1, this mighty angel who raises his right hand, now, this is the only time that an oath is taken in the book of Revelation. And if you remember, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 and 35, Jesus spoke against frivolous oath-taking. His brother James taught the same lesson in James chapter 5, verse 12. But this is not to negate the reality that there are appropriate times in which oaths are taken and should be taken. Throughout Scripture, godly men and women have taken them such as Abraham in Genesis 21, Isaac in Genesis 26, David in 1 Samuel 20, Paul in Acts 18, Jesus in Matthew 26, and God himself in Hebrews chapter 6 took oaths as a witness of confirmation to speak the truth. 
So again, just as in our judicial system, we swear oaths to verify and ratify that the, the truthfulness of what we are going to say. So this angel swears an oath and takes it in the name of the living God who lives forever and ever. Now this mighty angel, who is the ambassador and representative of the risen Christ, swears an oath by God that there would be no more delay. Despite not knowing when the end will take place, we are assured that it will take place. Just as the angel in Daniel's day lifted up his hand to heaven and swore that there was still a significant delay before the end, this is a reference to Daniel chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, here the angel declares that the end will arrive and that the sounding of the seventh trumpet will wrap up history as we know it. That is coming, and it's coming at the end of chapter 11. Now, what do we learn? In Isaiah 55, verse 11, our God promises us this. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in, that I, in what I send it to do. Brothers and sisters, when our Lord speaks, his word is certain, sure, and trustworthy. In the next chapter, we're going to see two witnesses appear to further ratify the truthfulness of this gospel. That not only is there an oath taken, there are witnesses provided symbolically demonstrating the Lord's word is true. God's word will come to pass. You can count on it. In a powerful and sovereign declaration, the mighty angel swears that which God has announced to his servants and prophets would be fulfilled. There would be no more delay. So brothers and sisters, be very encouraged by the word fulfilled in this text. It is a firm reminder to us that all that God has said, he will accomplish. There is no doubt about whether God's purposes and promises will come to pass. The angel swears that what God has revealed is true and will be fulfilled. So don't despair. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't be eaten up with anxiety. Don't live in fear about who wins in the end. Only if God himself can lie is this declaration not true. And if God can lie, he isn't God, and we're all a bunch of fools for having trust in him in the first place. This is our hope. This is our confidence. This is our joy in knowing that God has sworn that he will judge wickedness and that his people will be saved. No terrorist attack, no nuclear assault, no corruption in government, no sexual scandal, no military power, no economic collapse will stand in the way of God's word being fulfilled. Number three, God's purposes are to be ingested. God's purposes are to be ingested. Let's look at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. Now John approaches the angel and requests the scroll. And as we'll see in a moment, the angel responds by telling him to take it, need it. Now this echoes God's command in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 8 through chapter 3, verse 3. I want to read those verses with you. I believe they'll be on the screen behind me. Listen to this and see how much it is patterned after God's command to Ezekiel. 
But you, O son of man, referring to Ezekiel, which Jesus later picked up as a designation for himself, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. I opened it up. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Behold why it gets bitter in John's stomach. Right? Because it's sad. There's things in that scroll that communicate judgment. It's not all sweet. It's not all unicorns and rainbows. It's not all sweet and, and precious. It's, it's hard news as well. We continue reading in Ezekiel. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll and I'll give you and your stomach with it. Fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was my mouth as sweet as honey. So you see the background of what's going on here in Revelation chapter 10. Previously, John had been just a spectator. He had recorded the messages he had been shown, the visions he had been given, and the things he had heard. But now, the angel is calling him to be a participant in God's purposes. Not just a receiver of God's purposes, but an actual actor in the drama. He's not just recording the script copying the script. He's running, well, mixing metaphors here. He's running the plays. He's acting the part. He must eat the book and then prophesy, speak it. This contrast explains why the seven thunders are not written down as such. John must absorb and internalize them and then prophesy them. John is to take the scroll, devour it, completely eat it up. And the eating of this scroll symbolizes the spiritual assimilation of the message that the scroll contains and the prophet's personal identification with and submission to the truth contained in it. He's called to digest the scroll, take it into his innermost being, assimilate it, similar to what we read in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. However, John is told that he can expect a twofold reaction when eating and digesting this book. It will be sweet to his mouth and bitter to his stomach. Let's read verses 9 and 10 again. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and ate it. It was as honey in my mouth, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. I just want you to notice something. Immediately, God confirms the truthfulness of his word. Does he not? He's already told him by virtue of the angel swearing the oath that God's word is to be trusted, and then he gives him this scroll, and he takes it, and it, it's fulfilled right then. Exactly what the angel told him is exactly what he experienced. Again, brothers and sisters, I want you to be comforted and to realize that God is not just one who says, trust me, I'm going to give you no evidence, I'm going to give you no assurance, you're operating on complete blind faith, just dive out in the dark, I'll catch you, I promise. God gives multiple examples throughout history and in personal experience that his word can be trusted. And he gives it right here to, the, to, the, to, the, to John, telling him, 
This will happen, and it happens. So the things that are going to happen in the seals and the trumpets and the temporal judgments that are coming on the world and the things that will happen at the end when Christ returns and makes all things new and there's a new heavens and a new earth, those things are as certain as this fact that you're tasting honey and you're feeling sick. So notice the twofold reaction. The book is sweet in his mouth, but it's bitter in his stomach. And it's sweet in his mouth because of the joy and delight which God's word brings to a believer. It is sweet in our mouth because it reveals the gospel, God's goodness, God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, that he belongs to God, that John is his. Yet, while it also reveals his plans and his purposes and his wills and his ways, not all of those plans, purposes, wills, and ways are mercy and love and goodness and grace. They also include words of judgment and reminders that suffering is coming, persecution is a reality, and death awaits. So there's joy and sorrow, sweetness and bitterness, gladness and sadness when God's word does its perfect and sanctifying work in our lives. Brothers and sisters, there's a massive lesson here for the expectations of the Christian life. If you think coming to Christ or, coming, or belonging to Jesus is the pathway to ease, the pathway to felt blessing and now I'm happy all the day-ism, that will prove disillusioning for you. Because the Christian life is a life, as Paul said, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It is a bitter, sweet experience to believe and live according to the Bible. It brings joy, yes, and life, yes, and hope, yes, and peace, yes, but it also brings division and hatred and opposition and struggle. When the world speaks scornfully, like it is now and has throughout history, of what God has said in Scripture, we have to rest assured and trust God's word that the word of the Lord will stand and be fulfilled. When the world demands that we alter our views on whatever it wants to offer, our, to alter our views on in the moment, today it just tends to be human sexuality and gender or marriage, but it's been any number of issues throughout human history, especially minimizing the claims of exclusivity with the gospel, that, the, that Christ is the only way to salvation, then we have to call to mind what God has spoken and remember that it is a bittersweet experience to walk with Christ. As C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, brothers and sisters, we have to embrace the bitter sweetness of the Christian life. And I just want to apply this in two specific ways before we come to our last point. I want to remind you that sometimes the bitterness in the Christian life can be made sweet. In fact, God's purpose is that in the bitterness, he would bring sweetness out of it if we respond to him in confidence and trust. Two ways bitterness can be made sweet. First, bitterness can be made sweet by reminding us that through the bitterness of this world, we are to long for the sweetness of the world to come. No matter how hard we try to make it so, brothers and sisters, this present world will never be your paradise. 
we cannot make heaven happen for ourselves because heaven is a gift. It can only be given and received. It cannot be earned or attained. Scott Saul says, being awakened by God's pain megaphone redirects our focus to essential things worth preserving and nurturing. Relationships with family and friends, rhythm and practices leading to health, humble service toward our work, our churches, our neighbors, and above all, anchoring our roots in the character, promises, and future of God. So not only can bitterness be made sweet by reminding us that through bitterness we're to long for the sweetness of the world to come, but also bitterness can be made sweet by transforming us into sweeter people through the bitterness we face. Many of the world's greatest souls became the best in Christ, Holy Spirit-enabled versions of themselves, not in spite of, but because of their distress. Job lost ten children his wife's affection, his livelihood, and his reputation in a day. Moses stuttered. Jacob limped. Sarah was infertile. Tamar was assaulted. David was betrayed by his son. Hosea's wife became a prostitute. Ruth was widowed in her youth. Mordecai was oppressed and belittled. Jeremiah battled depression, as did Elijah. Gideon doubted God, as did Thomas. Mary and Joseph sought asylum from Herod's reign of terror. Mary and Martha buried their brother. John Mark was rejected by Paul. And that's just skimming the surface of the Bible. Not to mention church history. William Cooper wrote hopeful hymns in the midst of debilitating suicide attempts. Spurgeon preached some of his best sermons when he was crippled with depression. C.S. Lewis buried his wife after a short, cancer-ridden marriage. Ann Voskamp lost her sister, and Johnny Erickson taught her her ability to walk, both in tragic accidents. John Perkins endured jail and beatings and death threats from white supremacists. One person famously noted, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion and gentleness and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people don't just happen. They are formed in the furnace of affliction that they respond to with God-centered trust. Fourthly and finally, God's purposes must be proclaimed. God's purposes must be proclaimed. We see in verse 11 this concluding statement. And I was told, John, by the angel, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. God here, through the angel, is recommissioning John. He says, you must do this. Now, John is facing bittersweet experience in his own life. He's on an island of Patmos off the Greek peninsula, There, because of his faith in Christ, alone, presumably to die. And he says to him, you must prophesy. It's a moral imperative, a spiritual obligation that's placed upon the Apostle John. The angel says to him, you must prophesy, you must preach, you must proclaim this scroll. This is a divine mandate. It's a divine command. Your assignment is to go. And brothers and sisters so is ours. 
while we don't stand in the exact same stead that John stood and as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ receiving direct revelation from God through an angel about eating and consuming a scroll and preaching it, our responsibility remains the same. Go, therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Our calling as the church of Jesus Christ and members of it is to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to, contain, to, to proclaim the contents of this scroll. In the midst of the judgment, God is a, a, announcing through his people the good news of his grace in the gospel of his son. And we're going to spend the whole sermon next week learning about that reality. What is our responsibility now? In this age, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, while it includes a lot of things, the chief responsibility is to witness to the world about Christ. That's what chapter 11 is mostly about, and that's what we're going to spend most of our time next week on. But let me conclude with this word from Chuck Swindoll, which I thought was a helpful summary of all that we've seen in chapter 10, preparing us to launch in, Lord willing, next week to chapter 11. Just like John, we have roles to play in God's ultimate plan. We can't call ourselves apostles, and we don't receive literal visions and revelations from God. We're not required to swallow prophetic books to utter inspired words. But each of us has been given a crucial mission to share the good news of salvation with the world. Yet, just like John, we must first internalize the message, allowing it to become a part of our own lives. It's true that the gospel of Jesus Christ involves some bad news and good news. Bad news about lost humans subject to divine judgment, but good news about the righteous Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who paid the complete penalty for us and saves us when we simply trust in him. Is that something you need to do this morning? Save by, saved by Jesus through simple trust in him. That's God's call to you. But for those of us who are in Christ... As ambassadors for Christ in this age, Swindoll says, we must not only understand and accept the gospel ourselves, but we must also be able to communicate that message to others. Have you accepted God's commission on your life? May God give us the grace to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are for your word for these visions that we are receiving in the book of Revelation that John has passed down under the inspiration of your spirit to all churches, that we might be instructed in both what is to come and what is our responsibility now. Lord, while many of these things are mysterious to us, we thank you that the main things are plain, the main things are clear. Who we are in Christ, what we're called to do in Christ, what the future holds for us in Christ, what we are to expect in this life, and what is our responsibility for this life. Lord, would you anchor us deeply in, this, in, this, in these visions, in this book? Would you help us to live this week from Revelation, that we would live knowing this is the real world, this is what's really going on, not what we're being sold through media or reading on the internet or coming across a video on the internet or through YouTube or Netflix, all the competing things for our attention. But Lord, these are the main things. These are the, these are the ultimate things. These are the things concerning heaven and hell, eternity. So Lord, make us an otherworldly people. Make us people who are setting our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and help us from that life, from that mindset to live a heaven-centered, heaven-oriented life for your glory 